right, this time, children, meet in the back corner if you're going to children's church. Everybody else, uh, let's turn in God's word together to Matthew chapter 9. We're in Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to pick up at uh, verse 9 of Matthew 9. So 9-9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. This is God's holy word. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined At the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and was reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now, and we acknowledge uh, often just a self-righteousness within us. So God, we confess it, and we pray, Lord, that we would truly learn what you're teaching here, that you desire mercy, not sacrifice, that we would be men and women and and children who have a proper, humble understanding of who we are and an exalted understanding of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want you to look around now. Seriously, I want to see heads turning. Look around at everybody. I want you to look at the people here. I want images in your mind when I ask the question I'm about to ask, okay? So I want you to be thinking through all the people here. Be looking, gazing, staring, all right? You did it? We're good? Okay, here's my question for you. Who are you better than? Better than what? Who do you all perform in life then? Who are you smarter than in this room? Who are you better looking? Who are you better dressed than? Who are you a better parent than? So what parents do you definitely, I've, I parent better than them. Who are you a better spouse, better married person? You, you got this whole marriage thing down a little bit better than the person two rows over to the left. Who are you more successful than? Who are you funnier than? How about faith? Who are you a better prayer than? How, who do you know the Bible better than? Who are you more mature than? Marlon Brando, uh, a very famous actor, was interviewed once, and during the interview, he was awkwardly asked, what does it feel like being considered maybe the greatest actor ever? And he did not like the question. And he said, that's part of the sickness in America. You always think in these terms of who wins, who loses, who's good, who's bad, who's best, who's worse. We think in these extreme terms, and it's just not healthy. You see, that's a bad habit we have. 
ranking, labeling, critiquing, evaluating, we have a tendency to look around. Because if we're really being vulnerable, you guys do that all the time without me asking you to look around. You're ranking, engaging, and, and thinking. And you see, this sickness, it's not an American problem. It's a sin problem. Comparing and stacking ourselves up against others while ignoring our own imperfections and our own need for mercy. And friends, I I hope and I pray that every single one of us here today leaves here humbled. That's my prayer. That's my prayer all week. Uh, preparing. God consistently humbled me as I was preparing this week because Jesus came for sinners, sick sinners like you and I. None of us here deserve God's grace and mercy. I want you to pause on that thought today because here's the problem. Here's where the comparing breaks down. You and I, we're comparing against who? Each other. Where should we be comparing? Rather than looking around, we should be looking what? Up. And when we compare in that regard, we're not feeling that good. Amen? So that's what we're going to see, that Jesus, in his grace, in his mercy, has a heart for sinners. He has a heart for you and I. And we're going to see it in his three actions in our passage today. One, we're going to see he calls. We're going to see Jesus call an unlikely suspect to be a believer. Secondly, we're going to see that he challenges. He, he challenges the scribes, the self-righteous, who think they got their stuff together. And then lastly, he clarifies. He ultimately gives them a glimpse of what he expects, what he desires amongst his people. So let's get started as we pick up with the first action he calls. Now, you remember, we've been on a series where we've been looking, and the one thing that we keep seeing again and again with Jesus is that he has, starts with an A, what's the word? Authority. We saw him having authority over nature, authority over demons, through authority over sickness. And last week we saw him have authority in the spiritual realm over forgiveness. And this week we're going to see the audience of who receives this forgiveness that he speaks of. And we're going to uh, take note of the fallen humanity that is sick and in need of mercy. So first of all, he calls one to follow him. Read verse 9 with me. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. It's an interesting call when we consider Matthew. If you look at the other gospels, it appears he either had two names or his name was changed, which sometimes happens as we see in the Bible. His other name is Levi. So in Mark and Luke, it speaks of Levi. It's not two different people. It is the same person that we speak of. So the the call is interesting because if you remember what's going on with Jesus right now, he is being flooded with people. They're everywhere. Last week with the paralytic man, it was standing room only that they had to go through the roof to get to him. Mark 2.13, speaking right now in this context, He went out again by the sea, and all the crowds were coming to him, and he was teaching them. So they were everywhere there. And in the midst of this, it's it's quite interesting that Jesus calls Matthew. I don't know if you remember back in the days, maybe on the playground during recess, 
or maybe in gym class, you'll put two students, two kids as captains. You know what I'm talking about? Because you've got to figure out who's going to be on what team. And especially with the younger ages, when you do captains, as they start picking people, people who are not being picked yet, what do they start doing? They, they start waving their hands or like, pick me. Maybe one of the people you've already picked is whispering like, hey, I think you should pick him or you should pick her. But normally speaking, you're picking from the group of people in the line. Rarely would that happen when all of a sudden out of nowhere you look at all the people you can pick from, you ignore that crowd, and you walk to the other side of the playground and see somebody who's doing something else and say, hey, why don't you come? I would like you to play with us. And that's really what we see here. Matthew is not showing much interest in Jesus. Matthew is at work. Jesus has the crowds. Jesus has all these people there that he could have chose from, and yet... He chooses Matthew, the one who doesn't even seem that interested. And truth be told, that is really the call of the gospel. Romans 3.10, it says, There is no one who is righteous, no, not one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. And we sometimes talk of a way, well, there was a time when I was seeking God. Friends, the truth be told, you and I, we don't seek God as an unbeliever. We seek the benefits of God. We seek meaning and purpose, and and we keep trying it from all these different directions. But at the end of the day, as fallen sinners, we do not seek God until he does a work in our hearts and our minds. We sing this song, I think two weeks ago we sang it. Come thou fount of every blessing. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. So I want you to, for those of you here that consider yourselves a a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you. Can you remember your calling? When God opened up your eyes. When God opened up your hearts, do you remember where you were? Because I think we often have this revisionist history that we were doing pretty well spiritually, and Jesus came along, kind of did that little extra push. Like, friends, we were dead in our sins. We were lost. We were slaves to sin when Jesus came and he called us. But not only is it an interesting call, notice the intensity of the call. So he says to Matthew what? He, He says, follow me. We need to understand this is a command. It is not an offer. Do you understand the difference? It's not, I mean, today there'll be Super Bowl parties probably. And and I've had friends who've done like parties like that. And it's often an open invite party. Like, hey, you can start coming at five. Uh, We'll probably shut the party down at halftime, but you're welcome to come. We'll have food. We'll have hors d'oeuvres. Like, come or choose. But then there's other parties that you get invited to where it's like RSVP. It starts at 6. Be there promptly. There's a difference. It's between like, we need you here right then, and hey, if you want to. Jesus is not just looking at Matthew saying, hey, if you want to follow along with us, if you want to join us, that's cool. We would love your, your, your presence. No, Jesus looks him in the eye and he says, follow me. And that means a whole lot more than just follow me. It means I want you to leave your life behind. I want you to sacrifice and I want you to become my disciple. 
Matthew 16, 24, it says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So I have to ask us and even look at myself in the mirror, are you following Jesus today? Is it evident? Is it evident? Do we see it in our lives? Are we truly following Jesus? It's so easy for us to talk a good game. I follow Jesus. But there's very little evidence. With Matthew, we see evidence because he leaves. He leaves it behind. He obeys Jesus' command, and he follows him. But not only does he call them to follow him, he calls him to fellowship with him. Read verse 10 with me. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples So let's unpack a little bit Matthew and who he is and what he does. We need to understand that Matthew was hated. Hated. Not because of Matthew necessarily like, man, he just had that personality. Just can't stand the guy. No, his very identity was hated. There was an ad for drug-free living in America, I want to say maybe even in the 80s. I'm not sure exactly when. I just distinctly remember this growing up. And it would, it would talk about when a child grows up, you know, I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a, a teacher. And there's this girl in the video who's like probably late teens who is high and is going through a, a drug overdose potentially, and says when, when a child grows up, no one ever says, I want to be a junkie. Because that would be foolish. Like nobody desires that. No one, understand this, no kid in the first century was growing up saying, I want to be a tax collector when I grow up. Tax collectors, they were the most despised, hated men in Hebrew culture. Twofold, because they were considered double traitors. One, they worked for the Romans. Remember why the Jews were so excited that Jesus might be the Messiah? Because they thought they were going to get independence and freedom from the Romans. So they hated the Romans. And for one of their own to work for the Romans was unbearable. Second reason they thought they were traitors is because they were notorious for extorting and stealing and taking money from the Jews. And they did it because they were greedy and they did it willfully. So you weren't forced into the role of tax collector. You sought out that job because it could be a lucrative position. Luke 19.2 gives us an example. Jesus ultimately leads a, a chief tax collector to faith. Luke 19, 2, it says he was a chief collector, t- chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he goes on later and says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, translation, if I've been a good tax collector, I promise I will restore it fourfold. They were lumped in with murderers and thieves. They were not allowed to go to the synagogue, and they surely were not allowed uh, to be really embraced by anyone. And notice in, in verse 10, many of the tax collectors were now gathering. Jesus called one, and it resulted in a group of tax collectors now coming before Jesus. 
What kind of people does Jesus call to himself? I think we need to be reminded of that. We're way too quick to look for people who have it all together. Way too quick to look for, you know, like impressive people and like, now that's the person that Jesus calls. No, Jesus calls often a bunch of hot messes. Sinners, just wicked people. That's, that's what Jesus does. Not only were they hated, Jesus was at home with these people. Luke 5, 29 gives a little bit more detail to where he's at. Levi, Matthew, who he called. Guess what Matthew did once Jesus embraced him, called him to follow him? He threw a feast in behalf of Jesus at his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table. He brings this large company. Notice what it says, that many came, many tax collectors, many sinners, and Jesus was not ashamed to sit there with them. I mean, think about it. You and I, be very easy on a, on a given, especially when the weather's a little bit warmer, especially throughout Toledo, we could get to an intersection and I don't think it would take too long for us to find somebody there begging for food. It's a common thing we'll see in Toledo. You go find that person and most of the time, they're usually not dressed that well. Probably helps in the begging process. If they're truly begging, it's, they can't help it. If they're doing it to you know, kind of steal money from people. So, I mean, they look bad. They often will look filthy, dirty, unkept. And I'm not suggesting you should go do this, but I'm, I'm trying to prove a point. Would you be willing to go to one of those intersections, whatever the closest restaurant is, say, hey, walk over here, I'm going to provide you dinner. We'll sit down, we'll have a meal together. I think we're really, I don't think most of us would do it. I don't. Because I think you would be embarrassed. I think you'd be self-conscious by what everybody saw was you're sitting there in this restaurant with this filthy, dirty, homeless-looking person. Because that's what we think like. We do. We, we are so concerned about what people think, and Jesus isn't phased. Do you understand? Jesus is not phased to be in the presence of sinners. He just, he willfully, he is, he is engaged in fellowship with them. He's not ashamed. He's okay with it. Now, we do need to stress, he's not condoning their sins. I, I've seen Christians overreact to this. And that means as Christians, we should hang out in the seediest bars and hang out with drunks all the time because, well, Jesus did it. That, no, Jesus fellowshiped with these people. He did not engage in their debauchery. But he wasn't afraid to be in their presence. Because Jesus knew for the people who are sick, for them to hear the message, he needs his people to be amongst them. That's why in Romans 10, Paul could say, how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. Well, do you have friends who are sinners? Unbelievers. I mean, think about it. Your neighborhood. Do you engage with your unbelieving neighbors? Coworkers. I mean, one of the reasons, and we stress this, and you might not agree, and that's fine. We're not a heavy program-driven church because I don't want all of your time spent amongst all of you. 
You need to have people in your life that don't know Jesus. You need tax collectors in your life that don't know Jesus. You need sinners in your life, and they get to be in the presence of somebody who walks with Jesus, because that's how those people become you people. Do you understand? I and mean, that's what we see Jesus here when he calls, uh, calls Matthew and ultimately calls other tax collectors and sinners. But secondly, he challenges. He challenges. It creates quite the f- scandal what he's doing. And some are bothered by his acceptance of these people. So Jesus, not afraid to speak truth, he challenges the, the men who are, are questioning him, the Pharisees. First of all, he gives them a lesson on what he desires. Read verse 11 with me. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are, merc- who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. First of all, Jesus is telling them, there's no mercy. There is no mercy. Reminds me of a very famous movie, Karate Kid. Spoiler alert, there's a good kid, the Karate Kid. There's a bad people. Bad people are Cobra Kai. And Cobra Kai is led by a really bad sensei or master. And he is this ruthless and mean. And, and, and one of their slogans is, mercy is for the weak. And in the, the, the main event, this karate tournament, the bad guy's protege hurts the good guy. And as they're fighting, he says, I want you to hurt him more. And the kid's, I mean, he's still a high school kid, so he's like, that seems like wrong. And he looks at him and he says, no mercy. And he wants him to, to, un, you know, to attack and to hurt. Well, before there was Cobra Kai... There were Pharisees. You like that? <laughs> that was not staged. Didn't think it was that funny. No mercy. No grace. No steadfast love. That word actually used where it says mercy, it's the hesed that we looked at in First and Second Samuel. It's that covenant love and faithfulness. The Pharisees, that language was so foreign to them. None of that. They had a critical, judgmental spirit. Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you not be judged. Why do you see a speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eyes? Friends, that in a nutshell summarized the Pharisees. They looked at the tax collectors, they looked at the sinners, and they thought, gross. Why in the world would you interact with these people? Luke 18, 11, God, I thank you that I'm not like these men, these swindlers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. They had no mercy. So I want us to think, do you have mercy? Do you judge others? I mean, when I asked the question in the beginning, you should have felt uncomfortable with me asking that question. And some of you were thinking through the answers to that question. I saw it. I watched. You're like, well, well I mean, yeah, yes, 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 yes. Mm, maybe not them. Like, they're probably hiring me. Like, that's, where's the mercy? Not only is there not mercy, he wants there to be much Mercy. Friends, if, if you drive home today, and sometimes they have radar on this road, FYI. I haven't gotten pulled over yet, but I've seen it happen. 
it's 35 on this road. If you leave the Y and you're able to get up to 65 by the time you get to the light and there is a cop doing radar, you are getting a ticket. I, I can prophetically say that. I doubt they're going to extend mercy to you going 30 over the speed limit in a residential area. And yeah, right? Because mercy is not getting what you deserve. And what Jesus is saying is, I want you to not give people what they deserve. I don't want you to judge. I don't want you to be self-righteous. I want you to extend mercy. Micah 6, 8, he has told you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. He wants you to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Sinners need mercy. Well, are you extending mercy to others? And are you in need of mercy? So that's a lesson on what he does desire, but he also challenges them by giving them a lesson on what he doesn't desire. Read verse 13 with me. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, what doesn't he desire? He doesn't want sacrifice. Have you ever been to a restaurant and they gave you the wrong dish? Raise your hand. Have you ever asked them to give you the right dish? Raise your hand. Have you kept the dish that you didn't order because you just didn't want to deal with the awkwardness? A couple of you. What did Jesus order at this restaurant? He ordered mercy, and what did he get back? He got back sacrifice. Now, I want you to understand, Jesus is not saying, I don't want you to be obedient, I mean, we saw last week Jesus saw their faith. He wants to see evidence of your faith. He wants there to be action. He wants your faith to not just be a bunch of talk, but he wants to see movement. He wants you to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants, him, he wants to see you love others as himself. So Jesus is not saying, I don't want obedience. He wants obedience. He definitely does. But here was the problem they loved their own obedience. They were so proud of their religion and what they did. Amos 5.22, listen to what God says, his prophetic word. I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animal, I will not look on them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. And the reason he won't, because it was devoid of kindness and grace and mercy. That they were just so proud of their religious performance. Are you proud of your religious performance? Do you? I mean, think about it. All the things you do, 21 days in a row, quiet time, boom. You got 21 days? I mean, think about it. Did you hear me pray? That was like, it's pretty good pray. And then we love, we humble brag, right? I'm proud of my humility. That's not humility. 
Like I'm, I'm probably the most humble person I know. Uh, you don't understand the word of humility or humble at that point. But it's not just what he doesn't desire. Why doesn't he desire it? He doesn't desire it because they're prideful of it. And they actually think that is how they stand before God based on it. You understand? That's, that's the problem. It's, it's monopoly. And their get out of jail free card is their religion. That they think they'll stand before God and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of Jesus. It's going to be because, man, you've done a lot of good stuff. You're legalistic with your sin. All of this stuff. Listen to David. David, David got it. He finally got it. Now it took a huge stumbling and falling on his part. But he finally got it. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That is what God wants from you. That's what God wants from me. He wants humility. He wants there to be a brokenness that we are all in the same boat here regardless of how much fruit of the Spirit we see, regardless of how much um, religious activity you have or don't have, at the end of the day, you are in need of a Savior. And God is unimpressed in the sense of accepting you based on your performance. Are you too confident in your works? I mean, think about it. I'm not even joking. I know when I asked that question, you guys were thinking about who you were better than. Some of you. Group this size, guaranteed. Friends, you're missing the point. If anything, it should have been like, I'm the worst of everybody. I'm not better than anybody. So he calls to follow him, to fellowship with him. He challenges, yes to mercy, no to sacrifice. And he reminds them of why he came. First of all, he came not for the righteous. He came not for the righteous, he, listen to what he said again. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. First of all, the healthy. When do you normally go to the doctor? When you are. Now, it's weird in 2024. Not weird, and I, I think it makes sense. We do preventative medicine. So they would strongly encourage you, most of the medical world, even once a year as you're getting older, go to the doctor, get some labs done, just so if there is something wrong, we can catch it early so it's not too late. So, but generally speaking, the younger you are, let's say 20 to 30, most 20 to 30-year-olds probably don't do the wellness checks because like you're in that age where unless you're sick, you don't go to the doctor. And that's the point Jesus is making, that you go to a physician when you're sick, when you're healthy, you don't go. We've already seen that literally with Jesus in Matthew 4, 24. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with very disease and pains, those oppressed by uh, demons, those having seizures, paralytics, he healed them. And that's why they kept bringing him. And we see Jesus even demonstrating compassion on the sick because he has a heart for the sick. That's the healthy. But then he goes a little deeper because he's not talking here about sick people. Not in the traditional sense, physically. No, he says, the righteous don't need me. The righteous 
don't need me. It's more than just healthy. People who are spiritually all set, Jesus didn't come for them. People who don't need forgiveness, the perfect, they're all good. Jesus came just for sinners. COVID. Part of the problem when COVID came is you didn't know who had it. We didn't know how bad it was going to be. Uh, we, we would test. Some people would test positive. Some people didn't. It was just kind of that, like, it, it, I mean, realistically, at one point, it's not like every single person, especially early on, everybody had COVID. So it's this weird testing of, like, who has it, who, who doesn't. So Jesus just made something. I, I want to stress something. Jesus has said, I did not come for the righteous. I think part of the problem when Jesus said that, the Pharisees heard, guess what the Pharisees heard? He didn't come for me because I am righteous. That is not what Jesus is saying there. What Jesus is actually saying there is he is exposing their self-righteousness. What he wants them to understand is you're not righteous. Romans 3.23 says, all have fallen short of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Of God. That everybody, so if we're doing a test, not for COVID, but we're testing for righteous in our group, and we're testing it just based on you, every single one of us is coming back negative because none of us are righteous in and of ourselves. Well, do you consider yourself righteous? Do you consider yourself healthy and unneed, uh, in, in no need of a Savior? Because he not only clarifies that he's not for the righteous, and this is the important thing, he clarifies to them that he came for sinners. He came for sinners. Notice what he says. A physician needs who? He came for who? The sick. Who did Jesus come for? Sinners. And what Jesus is ultimately trying to do is get them to confess that they need a Savior. That they are sinners. It's contrast to the well, the righteous. I've known people who have who battled alcoholism and they went through uh, alcoholism, Alcoholic Anonymous, AA. And one of the, the, the initial steps with that is acknowledging, admitting that you have a problem, that, that alcohol is out of control and I have no power or control over it, that I need help. And friends, one of the, the most important things to ever happen to you and I, ever, is that we have that aha moment where we realize we're a sinner and we need a savior. That moment where we realize that God is God and I am not. I shared the earlier parable Jesus told, and you remember, they're looking over and saying, I'm glad I'm not like him. I'm glad I'm not like this sinner. I'm, not, I'm glad I'm not like this adulterer. I'm glad I'm not like this tax collector. But in the same parable, Jesus said, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's confessing not only his sin, but what his sin deserves. And I think too many of us have lost the awe, have lost the wonder that we are sinners saved by grace. David, Psalm 51.4. Now mind you, this is after he commits adultery with Bathsheba. 
tries to cover it up, has Bathsheba's husband murdered. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Stop pretending like you got it all together. Stop trying to fool everyone because God knows. I think all of us on a consistent basis, not because of our standing, because if you're a follower of Jesus and you've trusted in Christ, you're saved, redeemed. Eternity awaits you. But I think there is, God is desirous of you and I to consistently live a life of fellowship with him where we're confessing our sins and dealing with sin and putting sin to death and, and owning the fact that every day I need Jesus. Every day you need Jesus. You didn't need Jesus just until you became a believer. And I think that's unfortunately a lie that we bought into. I need Jesus because I'm an unbeliever. I turn to Jesus. You walk down the aisle. You check the box. Now that I'm a believer, I'm good to go. I'll see you at the finish line, Jesus. That is this foolishness. That is this ignorance to the nth level. I need Jesus today as much as I needed Jesus yesterday, as much as I need Jesus tomorrow. Because not just to confess sin, we need to profess our need of our Savior. When you and I, when we hand in a resume, because this makes sense, when we hand in a resume for a job, we try to bring the best version of us humanly possible. Like you had to give pens to people at your previous job. You equate that, I was an office administrator. I mean, we, we, we polish things up. But when we tar- start talking spiritually, if we were to give a resume before God, our resume should be one word, Jesus. Do you understand that? Listen to Paul. I mean, Paul, I, I think it's fair to say, has a more impressive spiritual resume than every single person in this room, right? And listen to what Paul said. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. If I asked that question earlier to Jesus, or not Jesus, to Paul, Paul would have said nobody. I'm not better than anybody. I received mercy for this reason that in me is the foremost. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That Jesus opened Paul's eyes to a sin and he became the paradigm that if Jesus can save me, he can save anybody. And I think we need to get to that point. Stop trusting in your works. They're not that impressive. You're getting into heaven because of Jesus and Jesus alone. So stop the self-righteousness. Stop the critical spirit. Stop looking at other people as if you've got it together, as if you are better. If it wasn't for God's grace, if it wasn't for his mercy, you're going to hell. All of us. And we need to start getting to that realization. These Pharisees are missing the point. They thought they were righteous. No, Jesus came for them. Jesus came for sinners. I was watching a criminal, uh, accused criminal before a judge on TV. This woman had been arrested eight times. Eight times. Not one, not two, eight times. Some of the things that she was arrested for in this particular account included grand theft auto. 
Big deal. List goes on and on. And she gets before the judge, and she begins praying, and she begins pleading with the judge. She said, this time is different. This time, you know, I've changed. She found, guess what? Religion, Jesus. And maybe she did. Maybe she did. And she said, I, I'm just, I'm throwing myself on the mercy of the courts. Please grant me bail. And he looks at her and he says, I bet you said that the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, the sixth time, the seventh time, the eighth time. She's like, the judge is like, I'm not having it. She's like, actually, the best interest of you, I'm keeping you here to keep protect you from yourself. You're going nowhere. He, he said, no mercy. You're staying in jail, period, the end. She wept, broke down in tears. He was not phased by it. She got escorted out. No mercy for her. And I would argue in this particular occasion, probably the right decision an eight-time arrested person is clearly not learning from their mistakes, and they probably need to experience this discipline, that she did not deserve mercy. Well, you and I, we're not eight-time arrested people. Do you understand that? We're not nine we're not 10, we're hundreds and thousands and, and thousands of repeated violations of the law again and again and again. And yet, our judge, as we throw ourselves at the mercy of that court, what does he offer? Mercy. Came across a song, I couldn't earn your forgiveness. I don't deserve your forgiveness. I should have burned for my wickedness, but you showed mercy on me. Friends, that's, that's the good news today. That's why I said in the beginning, I hope this passage humbles us, but also encourages us that none of us here are healthy, well people in and of ourselves. But because of Jesus, because of who we are in Christ, we can now be well. We can be righteous. And we can await heaven. Some of the most important words in the whole Bible are found in Ephesians 2.4. Here's the two words. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, if you are a follower of Jesus today, you are forgiven. Praise the Lord. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, Christ is here offering his forgiveness through the cross. Turn to him and celebrate what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We ask for forgiveness for our self-righteous 
Pharisee-like behavior. Forgive us for looking at our fellow believer and judging how poor of a parent they are and how bad of a spouse they are and judging our fellow Christian because uh, they're not as involved in the church as I am and they're, they're not as committed to Jesus as I am. I pray that you would convict and expose this arrogance and self-righteousness because it really has no place in the heart of a believer. We thank you that you are a God who is rich in mercy. You are a God who is gracious and compassionate and patient with us. I pray for anybody here this day who has not tasted of this mercy, that right now is resting on their own merits and behavior to get them into heaven. And I pray that you would not only convict them and open their eyes up to the foolishness of that, but that, God, you would give them faith to trust in Jesus alone. Lord, you really are our only hope in life and death. And Jesus is the one in whom we throw ourselves at the mercy of you and your divine court. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Let's stand and let's respond through worship.